Have you ever learned what should have been an obvious truth all along? Have you ever learned something that should have been an obvious truth all along? Some weeks ago, Amy and I were flying home from a little short vacation. We decided to take one last trip before the baby comes in May. Uh, Apparently, it becomes challenging to travel once that happens. I can't say for sure. And and as we were coming home and we were on the flight and we were preparing to land, the pilot and the flight attendants began to do their little song and dance. You know, you got to put up the tray tables and chairs into their upright position. I I looked at Amy and I made some sort of sarcastic remark to the effect of, what on earth does the position of my tray table have to do with the pilot's ability to land this plane? You've asked this question of yourself, I'm sure. And then the flight attendants overplayed their hand. They asked us all to put our window shades down. Amy and I looked at one another as though we'd unlocked one of life's secrets and said, they're doing it so that they don't have to do it when we land. They're making us all do it. The tray tables, the chairs have nothing to do with a plane landing or safety. It's so they don't have to go around doing it. I knew it. Mystery solved. (laughs) Our scripture this week offers uh, a similar revelation. Um, Hopefully uh, a bit more profound. Um, But uh, a truth which, as I worked through our scriptures this week, uh, shocked and and amazed me um, that I hadn't seen this before. You know, we open our staff meetings each week uh, with a devotional. So we spend some time in the Word before uh, working through what we've got going on that week as a whole staff together uh, because it's important for our work to begin in God's Word. And so as we were working through that this week, Patrick was leading us. And, and, and this week he challenged us to look at Tuesday's lectionary selection. So we were looking at, at four different uh, scripture texts from the lectionary reading that day. And Patrick was asking the question, what are these four passages have to do with one another? Why would the creators of the lectionary pair these texts together? And so as we work through the text for today, I want us to ask the same question. What are these two texts that we're going to look at, one from the Gospel of Luke and one from the book of Genesis? What do they have to do with one another, and why would someone choose to put these two together? And so we're going to start in in the book of Genesis, chapter 15. And I want you to uh, look carefully or read along carefully. Um, And I want to preface this with with one other thing, is that today we're actually going to talk about some kind of grisly stuff. And it's not because I was in a particularly strange mood this week, but it's because of where the text leads us. So just stay with me, and we're going to go where the text leads. So beginning in the book of Genesis In chapter 15, verse 1, we read, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own 
shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these and cut them in two, laying each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I give you this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Were you listening? Yeah, so any time that we read about animals getting chopped in half, I feel like we ought to spend some time unpacking that just a little and try and figure out what's going on there. But before we do that, I want to read our other text for today because I want you to begin to consider what these two may have to do with one another. And so we'll find this other text in the Gospel of Luke. In chapter 13, and it's, it's much shorter, it's just uh, four verses here, five verses rather. At the very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, go and tell that fox for me, listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. So what? First, back to the animals. In his book, What is the Bible?, author and pastor Rob Bell offers a compelling interpretation of this passage and what's going on here. And he begins by saying this. He says, he says let's say that you were going to sell a car. And so you had had an advertisement up on maybe OfferUp or, or Craigslist for a couple of weeks. And finally, you get a phone call and somebody's going to come over to check out the car. And as you see this person approaching, they, they look at the car a little bit and they put their hand out. And so you hand them a keys, presumably, for them to go take a test drive. And so they leave and they drive off. And, and an hour later, you begin to get concerned. Two hours later, you are certain your car has been stolen. And so you do what? Naturally, you call the police. And you tell them, look, I had been trying to sell this car, and a, a gentleman walked up, he took the keys, and he drove off with it. I haven't seen him in two hours. And, and 30 minutes later, they find the man. And he's walking out of a 7-Eleven, he has a cold drink, he's relaxed, and he's got an air freshener for his new car. 
And the police, they say, you know, sir, what are you doing with this vehicle? And he said, well, some nice person just handed me the keys. And so I took it. And they relay that information to you. And you say, what? He didn't give me any money for it. And so the officers go back and they, and they say to the man, you know, you didn't give any money for the car. And he looks at them puzzled and says, money for the car. That's a great idea. Now, surely this morning, this is an absurd story. Thank you, Dan. It's an absurd story because we all understand. We have this ingrained understanding of what a transaction ought to look like, right? We have this understanding that when we go to buy the car, we're going to pay money for the car. And that something needs to trade hands for us to have the right to drive off with it. And if that doesn't happen, we also have recourse. We have a series of things that we can do in order to follow up to say, look, somebody didn't live up to their end of the deal. But what did people do in ancient history? What did people do before there were police officers, before there was an intricate court system, before there were insurance and lawyers? How did people ensure that someone lived up to their end of the deal? The answer was covenant. And we actually have a lot of evidence of this, extra biblical evidence. We see this in Assyrian ancient cultures and the peoples that now live today in the modern, in modern day Syria. We see these transactions taking place. When you entered into an agreement with somebody, you would take animals, cut them in half, and then walk between the pieces together. As if to say, if I don't live up to what I say I'm going to do, may I be like these animals. This is really what happened. And and, and so people reading this story in Genesis would have understood very clearly what is happening, that this this transaction is taking place, that, that Abram is entering into this covenant with God. Abram, who who is still without a child of his own, can be assured that he is going to be the father of a new nation because God has just entered into this very serious transaction, this covenant with him. So let's set that there for a moment, and let's go back to our Luke text. So what does Luke offer us this morning? We see Jesus is approached by some of the Pharisees. And and these Pharisees actually seem to to maybe be friendly towards Jesus. They're warning him that Herod is coming after him. And so there is this interaction there. And then Jesus laments over the unfaithful. Jesus laments over the unfaithful and then reminds us that he is on his way to Jerusalem. And you and I know what that means, that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die. Friends, this Lent, we are on this proverbial road to Jerusalem together. These next five weeks, we have an opportunity to go on a spiritual journey as we prepare for what Jesus is going to do. So what does that look like for you? I want to ask that this morning. What does that look like? We've been talking about taking on spiritual disciplines to begin to prepare ourselves. So, so what have you been doing? How are you preparing? This past week, I was driving to the beach at about 4 a.m. 
not to participate in any spiritual discipline. Um, but just, I was going on a dive. So I was going scuba diving early in the morning. And as I drove down the beach at 4 o'clock in the morning, I passed by some of our friendly spring breakers who were at that time now just making their way uh, back to their hotels. Um, and it's interesting because I believe that our, our visiting spring breakers, you know, they offer us a, a pretty clear, a bit cliched view of how the world views happiness, of how the world views pleasure's role in happiness. In his book, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says that joy is never in our power, but pleasure often is. Hear that again and let that sink in. Joy is never in our power, but pleasure often is. You see, there is this distinction between experiencing true joy, this distinction between experiencing life the way that God created us to live, And simply seeking pleasure. Are you living life as God created you to live? You see, I've found in my own life that it's a constant process. It's constant work of correction. Often returning to bad habits. Somehow expecting different results. Have you experienced that? In his book, uh, Keeping Christianity Weird, uh, Michael Frost talks about these two basketball players. One I, I'm sure that you have heard of, Wilt Chamberlain. Wilt Chamberlain is one of the great basketball players of all time and one of the most prolific scorers. But he was a terrible free throw shooter. For much of his career, shot under 50% from the free throw line. The other player that he talked about is Rick Barry. Now, you may not have heard of Rick Barry, and if you had... It's almost surely because of the way he shot free throws. Rick Barry played a number of years in the NBA, averaged right about 90% from the free throw line, shooting them all granny style. (laughs) Two hands down to the ankles and up. Rick Barry and Wilt Chamberlain were contemporaries. They played at about the same time. And so after a couple of years of struggling from the free throw line, Wilt Chamberlain thought, I'm going to try that. And you know what happened? It worked. He shot markedly better the season after he changed his shooting style. But after one year, he went back. Why did he do it? Listen to this. When asked why he switched back, he said, simply, I felt silly. I felt like a sissy shooting underhanded. I know I was wrong. I just couldn't do it. Chamberlain had every incentive in the world to keep shooting free throws underhanded, and he couldn't do it because of how he felt he was being perceived. You catch that? It's not even really how he felt. It's how he felt he was being looked at. How do your own perceptions of how the world views you affect your own behaviors? How is it affecting the way that you spend your money? How is it affecting the way that you spend your time? How is it affecting the the people maybe that you spend your time with, career goals. Friends, let me tell you, if we are not spending time regularly 
in the word, in prayer, listening for the voice of God, we will slip back into old ways of shooting free throws. It's so easy for it to happen. Confirmands at our next service, I'm going to remind them to be spending time in the Bibles that we are giving them this morning as a gift. And they come with a lifetime guarantee that we will replace any worn out Bibles. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a brilliant uh, German theologian who uh, lived during the time of the rise of the Nazis. And in the 1930s, he was running a secret seminary. I'm not kidding. We have secret fraternities now. We wonder what they do. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was running a secret group of theologians. (laughs) I know. And they formed this community. And what they wanted to see would, what would it look like if we lived our lives as though all this were true? What would it look like if they lived their lives as though this were true? So, what would it look like if we lived our lives as though this were true? Not even what would the world look like. Can you imagine what Fort Lauderdale could look like? What could Fort Lauderdale look like if we lived like this were true? Not everybody, just us. We've got roughly 1,000 members. What if, uh, what if 500 of us committed to living as though this were true? What changes might we bring about? What joy might we bring into this place Friends, I want to invite you to join us on Wednesday nights for our church-wide Lenten Bible study. We want to create opportunities right here to teach you what it'll look like to get involved in spiritual disciplines throughout the week, to keep you connected into the voice of God. On your way out, there are mission opportunities to get you plugged into with our Boots ministry with Serve. Friends, what would it look like if we lived as though this were true. But after reading through our texts for this week, I I was left with this question, what happens when we don't live up to our end of the deal? What happens when we break that covenant made? I want to Look quickly back at Luke. Amy, would you bring this up? Jesus says, How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? It's so fascinating. Uh, N.T. Wright paints this beautiful picture of what Jesus is talking about here in this scripture text. You see, on the farm... When there was a fire, there really is no place for the animals to go. And so farm animals have actually developed different ways and strategies for keeping their young safe. Chickens would do this. In fact, there have been a number of stories of exactly this, of after a farmyard fire, those cleaning up have found a mother hen, black and scorched, with little living chicks underneath her. 
Jesus paints this vivid image of exactly what he is on the way to Jerusalem to do. To give up his life. And this is the startling truth that struck me this week. That in Genesis, God had already begun to set in motion what Jesus would do in Luke. When we look at the scripture and we look at the covenant being made between God and Abraham, God is the only one that walks through the pieces. God sets it up such that he will pay when we break covenant with him. God has created a system in which to show us grace, in which to enter into humanity in order to uphold the deal and help us find joy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, friends, amen. Gracious God, as we prepare to leave this place, God, help us to listen for your good and true voice. God, help us in hearing that voice to listen. Help us to live in such a way as though what you have written for us is true and such that the world might realize and know who you are. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.